From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across Northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Hello, Marin. Hello, hello. We are back again looking at editions of The Lowlander that were sent out to the men between the 11th of December and the 17th of December 1944. Yeah, and the men of the 52nd Lowland Division in Northwest Europe would have been browsing through this newsletter every day. Uh, we picked out some of the articles that jumped out for one reason or another, and we're going to have a little look at what's behind them, as it were. Uh, so, what else is going on this week, Marin? Well, this week, when we're not listening to I'm Making Believe by the Inkspots and Ella Fitzgerald, the men might be picking up news of Lee's action. Germany trying to recruit Dutch men for the German labour force, which may have made sense at the time because they'd also forbidden the use of electricity in some parts of Holland. And a German V2 struck the Antwerp bioscope. So that's what's going on in Northwest Europe, at least. But should we find out where the jocks are on the ground? Can you tell us where the men of the 52nd Lowland Division are, please, and what's going on? Well, if you remember from last week's episode, we talked that they were starting to move down south towards Gielenkirchen, and actually the, the whole division now is down there, and they're based around what's called the, the Rohr Triangle, and it's basically a triangle of German territory that juts out uh, from the Siegfried Line. Um, if we think about the triangle, and, and we'll post some um, some maps and some uh, diagrams on, on the, on the um, show notes, at the top of the triangle, we have the Dutch town of Roermond. The bottom left-hand triangle, we have the Dutch town of Sittard. And the bottom right-hand of the triangle, we have the German city of Gelenkirchen. And that, that land there juts right out into the Allied line. And, and the 52nd Lowland Division, along with the other divisions in what's known as 12 Corps, uh, the 43rd Wessex Division, the 7th Armoured Division, and the 8th Armoured Brigade, they're basically sat around there holding the line. And the idea is they're going to get ready for something called Operation Shears uh, in late December, and that's going to that's going to basically crush that triangle of uh, of German territory. Um, now that doesn't happen, and I think later on in the episode we'll explain why. But yeah, so they're basically it's incredibly cold now. The weather is now turned. It is frozen. It is snowy, and I think um, when you ran one of your uh, <laughs> when you did your little research on that when we talked about it a while ago, I think the temperature got down to about minus ten on some uh, nights. Yeah, it is. It is a bad wind. But tell me, are, are they just dug in? I mean, they're not sort of <clears throat> making it well. This week in December, they're just sort of holding the line. It's entirely static. So there's a little bit of everything going on, really, similar to when they were at um, Sertogenbosch in, in the Netherlands. Mm. We've got some of the division up front dug into the the line mm. um, along the base of that triangle. Um, and into the woods and the villages and the fields around that base of that triangle just north of, of Gallenkirchen. Uh, so there's, lot, there's lots of patrol activity, but there's actually no offensives at this stage. Oh, that was what I was going to ask. They'd be, sort of still be taking out little pockets of bits and pieces, wouldn't they? As they yeah, came uh, very minor operations. It's, it's almost entirely patrolling, um, artillery strikes, mine warfare, lots and lots of mine warfare. Um, mm. where they're laying mines and also they're picking and identifying German minefields as well. So they're, they're, it's very, very static at this point. In fact, for those of you who have ever watched Band of Brothers, if you see them in the Bois Jacques or the, the forest in Belgium, 
Um, it's kind of like that, basically. They're just dug in and they're waiting for something to happen or they're waiting for the next offensive. As it turns out, that offensive isn't going to happen until uh, almost a month from now, uh, mid-January 1945. Got it. Okay. Well, with that in mind, with all of that in mind, do we want to have a quick look at the Lowlander then? I think we probably should. So do I. December 11th, 1944. Air War. More than 500 flying fortresses and liberators went for the Rhine railway centres of Koblenz and Bingen yesterday afternoon. Typhoons wrecked another dam in Holland while Spitfires went for V2s in Holland. They hit a hotel where the rockets were stored, railway goods yard receiving supplies of the launching sites, and there were no losses. Carrier-borne aircraft attacked a convoy off Norway and left two ships blazing. Heavy bombers from Italy went to Pilsen and Skoda Arms Works in Czechoslovakia. Mm, now then, what do you know about Skodas? Uh, I know that they're basically the same as a Volkswagen nowadays because it's all made in the same place. They used to be terrible cars. They were. Um, but now they're regarded as pretty good cars. That You're going to tell me that there's something different here. <laughs> Only a little bit. Um, the reality is that Skoda, yes, we associate it um, off the top of our heads with um, cars these days. But mm-hmm. back then, Skoda was a huge works that had all sorts of different parts to the business. They were brilliant with steel. Skoda made part of the piping for the Niagara Falls, made the sluices for the Suez Canal, and it produced munitions in both world wars. Emil Skoda started churning it out in the late 1800s, and Pilsen um, was a huge, huge factory complex, about 400 acres with 40,000 Czech workers. So when Hitler um, went in and grabbed the Sudetenland, he got all the Czech army stocks and the Skoda works for free. Yeah, and I'm right in thinking that he used basically the Skoda uh, LT-35 tank. Panzer. And turned no well, and then turned it into the Panzer thirty five T tank. So yeah, he sort of right, yeah. re- rebadged it and said, "Oh, this is this is ours." <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, but in addition to to tanks, they were making mortars, howitzers. Mm-hmm. They were making gun turrets for for battleships. They were making tractors, trucks. You name it. If it if it had decent metal in it, they they um they turned it out at Skoda. Yeah. Um, the net effect of that was it was almost permanently on our hit list. As in, we were always trying to attack it. This didn't always go to plan, though. So, I mean, this article here we're looking at says heavy bombers went from Italy to Pilsen. We were trying to knock out the Skoda factory all the way through the war. The um, the, the the big one to remember is April 1943. Right. We sent um, 327 four-engine bombers, Halifaxes and Lancasters, over. We got completely wrong. Um, hit a psychiatric hospital instead, and I think something like oh, seven or eight hundred people died. Um, Operation Frostblower, that was called. Oh God, that's a bit <laughs> depressing, isn't it? It's not. It's not. Well, exactly. clearly, clearly, they didn't hit it because they're still talking about it in late 1944, aren't they? Yeah, and and in 1945, post-war, um, the it was still a problem because. Um, the Americans and the Brits had another motive for destroying the factory at that point because when the war was over, we had a suspicion that Russia might try and dismantle it for, for industrial production back home, which, mm-hmm. which I guess made it kind of one of the earliest moves of the Cold War, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, I never. Mm. So there you go, that's Skoda for you. I might relook at Skoda's now. I'm no. not. I'm not going to relook at Skoda's. But... <laughs> <laughs> you drive a BMW. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. 
So on the other side of the Lowlander, December the 11th still, we have a short article in the section called Jottings from Home. And it reads, Big Ben went on strike at 10.47 on Saturday evening until 4.30 Sunday afternoon. Oh, the, the thing I love about Jottings from Home is that it provides no other context for the thing that it's just said. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. It just says it went, no indication of why it went on strike. It just, we, we've got it jotted down there. And I think, I suspect probably the guys writing it are, are doing it deliberately. They're having a mm, bit of a laugh. Um, but, but I think before we go on, we need to clarify some facts about Big Ben, right? Okay. Common mistake, Big Ben is not the tower, right? That's okay. the clock tower, okay? So the, the, the actual... The actual clock bet, the actual, the bell is Big Ben and the tower is called the Elizabeth Tower. So, okay. And it's only ever stopped a few times, ever. It went quiet during the First World War to stop enemy aircraft using it as a target for the Houses of Parliament. Although, I don't really understand why <laughs> making it not work stops the pilots from seeing it, but we'll come back to that maybe later. Uh, and between 1939 and 1945, the clock dials weren't lit up. Now, that makes sense because that's blackout rules. So that, that, that does make sense. Uh, and in May 1941, a German aircraft bombed it, but it didn't do any real damage. Um, but uh, this month, December, the hands got stuck at 10.47. Uh, now, they stayed that for about 12 hours. Uh, the newspapers reported it as a mechanical defect. Uh, I mean, they had other reasons in the past for stopping. Uh, one time, a painter's ladder fell over uh, and a workman's hammer got dropped into the mechanism. Uh, but this time it just appeared to stop. Okay. Well, you know what you're saying about First World War and it was a target in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there is, um, I don't know if it's an urban myth, but there is a theory uh, that in the Second World War, so the BBC News used to bro- broadcast live, yeah, mm-hmm. and have Big Ben going off in the background, absolutely live. They, they have a microphone. And the theory is that German physicists found they could listen to those broadcasts and depending on what they sounded like, they could work out what the weather conditions were like in London. And, of course, if you think about it, if you're sending um, rockets over and you hear mm-hmm. them exploding on target, yeah. well, you know, you know you're going in the right direction, wrong direction, insert, you know. Dastardly okay. German scientists. I mean, assuming they've got uh, white hair stuck up on end <laughs> with very thick milk bottle glasses. But the story goes that when people worked this out, they then changed over and replaced the live broadcast with a, um, a static recording. Which actually makes more sense just from a production point of view. So <laughs> it does. And doesn't oper- sound as sexy, but it's you know, yeah. No, and Operation Big Ben. Do you know what that was? No, absolutely no idea. Well, that was that was the title of the um, operation. Now it was. This is a weird one because it wasn't actually classified in the files as Operation Big Ben, but everybody referred to it as Operation Big Ben. That was the title given to um, Spitfires dive bombing German mobile V two rocket launch sites in Holland. Between October 44 and 1945, you see? So that, ah. goes back, that goes back to the introduction in the first page. Look at that! It's almost uh, like we planned oh, it. Almost like we planned it. December 12, 1944, Western Front. The American First Army continues its progress along the main highway to Cologne. In spite of rain and snow, they have reached the point of only two miles from Duren and have broken into a string of villages near the Roar. Reports say that the enemy defence seems to be weakening and there are signs that the Germans are pulling out. On the adjoining 9th Army front, the campaign on the west side of the Rohr has ended. All enemy pockets opposite Jülich have been wiped out. 
So that's what I was talking about earlier, where we've got all these operations that we now know by looking over our shoulder are lined up, but as they're moving around, they're still having to pick out little enemy pockets of, of Germans sort of hanging out. Yeah. Okay, so just to, so we'll bring it into context hmm. for, for people reading. So we just talked about where the 52nd Lowland Division were, which is just north of Gailingkirchen. Yeah. Gailingkirchen itself is just um, a little bit further north than Aachen, and Aachen is a major German city, and Duren is to the east of Aachen. So it's not very far from where the 52nd Lowland Division is. And this area, the Rohr River, or the Ruhr as the Germans would call it, it's Rohr in, in, in the Netherlands, Mm-hmm. This area there, there um, also follows the line of the Siegfried Line, which is a huge defensive line which runs all the way down uh, through Germany. Yep. And it's also the first barrier between that and the Rhine River, which they're going to have to cross later in 1945. So it's all started to join up, um, join, join up, and sort of in terms of um, they've, they've got a plan for next year and they're just trying to clear all of this. So um, the other thing to note is it's. Um, the, the, the article just then said that the, that the Germans seem to be pulling out and the, and the defences seem to be loosening. Now, I'm not going to say what happens next because I don't want to spoil it, but later on we might discuss why that's actually happening. And it's not because the Americans are winning. <laughs> hang on a second. Is it anything to do with the weather? Because, uh, no, well, no, 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 well, hang on. Because we, we all joke about this being a terrible winter, but when you think about the terrain in that triangle... Yeah. flooding and rivers etc it must be much easier to defend well i think generally speaking it's easier to defend yes and in, in general you've also got the siegfried line which has got lots of heavy guns you've got rivers that you can defend and yeah just in general this whole part especially if you go further north up the river roar then it gets, yeah. starts to get much much more much uh much more flooded but it is in the same areas where the 52nd lowland division are and crucially mm-hmm. that area just north of gellinkirchen is where the American armies and the British armies are joined. So the 52nd Lone Division and the 43rd Wessex Division are actually joining on to the American 9th Army, which is just to the north of the 1st Army. So yes. it's all starting to build a picture, and I think later on in this episode we will talk about where it's all going to end up. December the 12th, Far East. Japanese reverses were reported from all fronts yesterday. In the North Burma combat zone, British troops have taken Katha, and following the occupation of Naba, they have pushed on to capture a town four miles to the south. Further west, East African troops have pushed on halfway from Kalawa to Yeu. In the Philippines, American troops have captured Ormok, the port through which the Japanese were attempting to supply and reinforce their hard-pressed men. Chinese troops have thrown the last Japanese soldiers out of Chow province. Well. Mm, lot going on in the Far East. There is a lot. And there is, and that we all, we forget that because <laughs> we're focusing on Western Europe because that's where the 52nd are. But of course, as we've discussed in earlier episodes, they are also keeping their attention on the Far East. Uh, we, you mentioned Ormok there. Have you ever heard of Ormok before? No, I have not heard of Ormok. Tell me about Ormok. Well, we can put some things into context. Ormok is the largest city in Leyte province on Leyte Island, mm-hmm. uh, which is, of course, in the Philippines. It is in the Philippines, isn't it? It is. Fucking hell, right. Okay, I'll read that again. <laughs> Just keep going. So Ormok 
Omrock sounds like a bathroom sealant. Yeah, Ormok, 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 not Omrock, Ormok. Ormok is the largest city in Leyte province on Leyte Island, which is, of course, part of the Philippines. Uh, and Leyte was, of course, the setting for the Battle of Leyte on October, which crippled the Japanese combined fleet, helped the US to go through the Philippines and reinforce the Allied control of the Pacific. In fact, the Battle of Leyte was probably the largest naval battle of this war. 200,000 naval personnel involved. Landings at Ormok Bay, sorry, Ormok Bay, took place a little bit later, and it was a series of air-sea battles that took place from the 9th of November right the way through to the 21st of December. Gotcha. I think the main thing about all of this, and it's a huge sort of um, tick in the box for the Americans, is they managed to sink six Japanese carriers that had actually been part of the attack on Pearl Harbor three years earlier, which is the end of of the day is why they're there in the first place. Which is a bit of a coup, really, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So um, the pronunciation of all these places is a nightmare. I'm sure we've got them wrong. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. In fact, I would be surprised if we've ever got them right. December 13th, 1944. The Battle for Durin. Yesterday was the 69th birthday of the Field Marshal von Raunstedt, the Supreme Commander of the Germans in the West. But this veteran representative of Prussia can have found little cause for celebration. Slowly but remorselessly, the American First Army is closing in on Durin, the key town commanding the plain which slopes away to Cologne. Now, the article goes on for quite a big article, actually, for the Lowlander. It's, it's most of the page. But our attention is drawn, and we will put these in the show notes, to, I think, one of the worst maps I've ever seen. It's, it's a map now... I think, could you just describe, it might just take a second to describe the layout of the Lowlander because we haven't done that for a couple of episodes. All right, so, so the Lowlander is one piece of paper. It's duplex, it's double-sided. It's one piece of A4 paper. At the top of the page, you've got um, an emblem, a banner that just says the Lowlander and it's got the, the 52nd Lowland Division's sigil there with the saltire. Although this is almost, is it always black and white? It is, isn't it? There are always black and white, yeah. Always black and white. And then on the on the front, you've got basic typewritten content, which is sometimes in two columns, sometimes it's just all over over the place. There are cartoons and there are little maps and drawings sometimes inserted in on both sides. But the map making capabilities of the editor or whoever got whoever he got to draw some of these is um I mean it depends. <laughs> It depends what you're using it for. I mean, it has got... I mean, we will, we will post it. you have to post this one. Germany is split in two. So you've got Ger, and then what would be, I would say, approximately 40 miles to the east, Manny. <laughs> it's bisected by the River Roar, not yeah. the River Roar, even though it's already in Germany. Yeah. Um, my favourite is the Hurtgen Forest at the bottom. It looks like a child... Uh, for those of you who don't know what went on in the Hurricane Forest, it was a horrendous battle with the Americans and the Germans. Thousands of Germans were killed. It was probably one of the worst um, battles ever to fight in in the Second World War, which is saying something. Mm. Um, but it looks like a like an eight-year-old has drawn a nice little German forest. It's got nice little Christmas trees. <laughs> you, don't, you don't expect Eeyore and Pooh to come out of one side, don't you? It, we, we certainly do, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure who is benefiting this map, and I suspect I've got a sneaky suspicion there was a, there was a rush to print, and they and they just tried to to, to sketch it up. Um, it's worse than that. I mean, if you ask somebody to draw a really bad map, it's just 
there's no apart from the fact that there's no scale and there's no orientation there's no compass and all those common things it's just awful yeah so uh we we, we mark it a, i'd say two out of ten for maps that's um, generous and, and, and that's because it's got um you know the the word cologne is spelled correctly that is a good point so um we will we mentioned Duran earlier, and we will be coming back to Duran possibly later on. Yes. Now, I'll tell you what I will pick up on on that map. It's got the railway on it. Mm-hmm. So, it well, I, well, no, it's got a lane with lots of little lanes drawn on it, which we're assuming is the railway. We're assuming that's the railway. <laughs> and the other thing <laughs> the, the other thing worth mentioning is, although we're joking about the fact Eeyore's going to come out of that little wood at the bottom left, what somebody's drawn is pine trees. Yes. Okay. Yes. So it, when you when you think about um, maps and symbols on maps, what people don't realise a lot of the time is that um, German map makers were very very good at making um, note of exactly what the the tree cover or the landscape was. So they'd write Laubwald for deciduous, Mischwald was mixed, Nadelwald was coniferous, and then they'd go on and they'd have special symbols for Heath for shrubbery mm-hmm. and wide leaf plants and bracken, peaty bog. Then they'd have a symbol for sand and um, gravel or wasteland. They'd have a symbol for hop plants, and they'd also got a symbol for Baumschule, which was Baumschule. Um, Baumschule isn't that a great word? Which was um, a tree nursery. No, yes. my, my yes. babble German that I've been doing that I got that. What Baumschule? Baumschule. Yeah, but it's all about forestry management, which is which was ongoing and part of the um, part of the culture, etc., etc., etc. It's un- un- unlike the Germans to obsess over forests. Well, exactly. But they but they took what I'm tr- trying to get to is that they took the symbols on their maps very very seriously. That's not to say that GSGS and AMS. Um, the, the, the English and American equivalents didn't, but whereas the Germans had really broken it down into, oh, look, there's a shrubbery, the, 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 the British and the Americans had got coniferous, uh, mm-hmm. non-coniferous, we'd got coppice, orchard, scrub, and marsh or reeds, but that was it. We didn't go as far as saying, oh, that's peaty bog there. And if we had, then we would have had much more insights about heavy tracked armour and how it would have gone on um, across various bits of terrain? <laughs> certainly, certainly the guy that drew this did not know about the different types of tree cover. <laughs> no. he's, he's just with his little green wax crayons, isn't he? Bless him. We should probably mention that we've just come back from a recce. We have, and we were going to have a little conversational style advert here where we say, where have you been? What have you been? Let's cut the crap. Why don't you just tell us exactly where we went, who we were with, and what we were there for? Okay, so we went to the Ruhr Triangle and the Rhineland, and we went on a battlefield tour recce. We were visiting the stands that we'll be taking people to next year, in October 2024, and we went out with the wonderful people at Battle Honours Tours. Yeah, and the purpose of this recce is, of course, to tell you about the 52nd Lowland Division and to follow in their footsteps. But it's not just the 52nd Lowland Division. We're also going to be looking at Peter White and obviously his book with the Jocks. So you'll be able to actually visit locations that he talks about. You'll see some of the sites that he mentions and, of course, some of the uh, burial sites for his Jocks. 
Mm, we'll be looking at uh, Tangle with a Tiger Tank in Waldfeucht and visiting Sittard. Yep, uh, we'll be able to find some of his actual trenches and slit trenches in Tripsrath Woods, as well as going all the way up to Aferdon where you'll find a destroyed castle, which was really important in that battle there. Yeah, Castile Bleidenbeck. And then we'll be going to House Lou. And to cap it all off, you'll be able to dunk your toes in the River Rhine at the exact location where Peter White and the rest of the 52nd Lowland Division went across the Rhine in March 1945. So book your diaries now, October 2024. It's October the 11th to the 14th, and you will find out more at walkingwiththejocks.co.uk. What is it, Andy? walkingwiththejocks.co.uk Perfect. Thirteenth of December, nineteen forty-four, and we go to the jottings from home section. Londoners are spending about fifteen hundred pounds a week to find out the time from Tim. Explanation is shortage of watches and alarm clocks. Six out of every ten street clocks, it is estimated to have been damaged by bombs, are in badly need of overhaul. So that's that's not Londoners individually. That's Londoners as a collective, isn't it? They're spending all yeah, that money. Yeah, I, I hope that one person isn't spending fifteen hundred quid a week. Uh, Tim, what is Tim? Tim, Tim yeah. is short for time. So this, that, that's the speaking clock. It came in not long before the war started. Came in in nineteen thirty six. Before that, people just used to pick up um, pick up the phone and get connected to an operator and ask him or her what the time was, which wasn't ideal if the operator was then trying to connect calls. So they brought Tim in and it came in um, just in the Holborn Exchange to start off with, but it was rolled out nationwide in 1942. You could dial TIM, which was 846. Um, I think there was another number elsewhere in the country, but in in the major sort of cities, it was always 846 TIM. And you'd go through to a recorded voice. And it used to cost one penny from home and tuppence from a phone box. Safe to say that the overwhelming majority of the people that listen to the Lowlander are over 40. <laughs> I think we can say that with some, but there's yes. lots of things you've mentioned there which perhaps the younger audience might not know about. Such as? Such as what? I do remember using it when I, was a, when I was a kid, and I think I just did it because it seemed like a funny thing to do. What, phone the speaking clock? Phone the speaking clock, yeah. Saturday the 16th of December 1944. German frontier crossed by 7th Army. Four months ago, the American 7th Army landed on the sunlit coast of southern France. Today it stands on the threshold of Germany and has crossed the frontier at one point. This remarkable advance has covered in all 500 miles and has overcome many natural obstacles, swift flowing rivers and mountain barriers. In the teeth of stubborn resistance, the men of General Patchy's army threaten one of the natural gateways into the Reich. Through the Palatinate, rich in its memories of German history, and the road leads to Mannheim and the heart of Hitler's Europe. In its latest drive, apart from thrusting across the frontier near Weisenberg, the Americans have fought their way to Lauterburg in the northeast tip of Alsace. In this town, less than a 10 miles from Karlsruhe, which is self under gunfire battles, were yesterday going on in the streets. Mm. Now, it's painting a rosy picture of the Americans on the Saturday, the 16th of December. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on there. Um, now, for the eagle-eared and the people that have got a, a smattering of uh, history knowledge about the Second World War, 
Is there anything about the date, the 16th of December, 1944? Well, people aren't sitting around writing their Christmas lists for Father Christmas over the next few days, are they? No, they're not. No, they're not. I'll tell you what, what I won't do is I won't explain why this is very rosy, but let's just say, and I'll remind everybody, that the Lowlander normally reports and stuff a couple of days later than it actually happens. Oh, that's a good point, actually, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's nip forward, and we're going to do something I haven't done before where we read, straight away we read another article. This is... December the 17th, 1944, so the next day. The Bosch hits back. From their recent dogged defence, von Rundstedt's forces yesterday went over onto the attack on several sectors of the Western Front. The US 9th Army met and broke an assault launched in regimental strength east of Gallenkirchen. On the right, the 1st Army has cleared a 20-mile stretch of the River Roar opposite Durin. But, but just to the south, where our allies have been struggling through the Hürken Forest, the enemy is now developing a counterattack with growing force. His first thrust was delivered at 5am on Saturday, and since then the enemy gunfire has mounted in intensity. At times 100 shells a minute have rained down on our positions. Well, that's a slightly different report from the day before, isn't it? It is a bit, it is a bit, because they're catching up on what's going on. Exactly. So they're actually reporting. This is actually a good indication of how quickly they pick up and stuff. So for those of you who don't know what's going on, this is, of course, what the Germans would call Wacht am Rhein, the operation, uh, a massive counterattack in the West against the Americans mm. in the Ardennes um, under, as I say, under General von Rundstedt. And it caught the Americans almost completely off guard. And this is the first reports of it coming in. So it's literally the day after the event, the reports are coming in and the guys in the 52nd Lowland Division are reading it. So remind us for a second, where are the, where, where are the Lowlanders sitting reading this? So, well, actually, they are only just around the, the Gallenkirchen era, as I mentioned at the start of the episode. No, they're, not that, they're not that far away. No, they are. And this is why it's important. They are actually the join. So the, the right-hand battalion of the 52nd Lowland Division is actually the one that joins on to the um, the American Ninth Army, yeah. So okay. the Americans dealt with a local counterattack. So it actually mentions the Ninth Army. They they uh, countered a, a regimental sized German counterattack, which was done to kind of keep the Americans occupied while the main thrust was a, uh, a little bit further south in the Ardennes. So it's actually quite important. And in fact, from this point on, the alert state within the Fifty Second Line goes much higher mm. because they know it's the link and. Yeah. Later on in the month, there is actually a number of counterattacks um, by the Germans against the 52nd Lowland Division in their positions around just to the north of Gallenkirchen. So, so while we're reading this, you just said that um, we, we have to bear in mind how long it takes for the news to get to them. But when we're reading things from the Far East and what's going on on the Eastern Front, okay, fair enough. If it's happened a week ago, you can understand that. But if, if the action's happening... It's not within earshot, but it's close enough so that they know the names of these villages and towns and places, and they know that they're heading in that direction. That puts a different perspective on things, doesn't it? Yeah, it does a little bit, yeah. And actually, some of the war diaries of this time from the 52nd say they can hear vehicles moving south yeah, across yeah. the German line, so they know that the Germans are up to something. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so that is the Battle of the Bulge, and in fact, as we will go on for the next couple of weeks, there will be regular updates as to what's actually happening. But at this stage, on the December the 17th, when this report gets through, they don't really know that much about where it is and where it's landing. Um, but um, it does explain why the couple of days before it was everything was easy. <laughs> 
December the 16th, Far East, Burma. Many times the swamps and malaria-infested jungles on the northwest coast have changed hands in this war. Before the monsoons, when the Japs forced back the 5th Indian Division in an all-out attempt to reach Bengal, we were compelled to retire from Buthidang. Now, Buthidang and all the neighbouring territory we were then relinquished is again in our hands. On the left flank of our 300-mile front, the Chinese have compressed the Japs surrounded at Barmo into 2,000 square yards. Meanwhile, the 36th British Division continues to prise its way down the Irrawaddy to Mandalay. So, a couple of quick things there. If you're going to compress... your enemy into an area that's just 2,000 square yards. Mm-hmm. That's fairly focused, isn't it? That's fairly focused, yes. But then you have the the Japanese skillet defending very small areas. Uh, you know, they're obviously renowned for their ability to dig in. And, and obviously every single yard of that has to be fought for. Yeah. Whereas, whereas in the Western Front, the Germans might take a tactical decision to withdraw or to to you know to hold and then then surrender. The Japanese, you're going to have to fight every single yard. So mm. two thousand yards, yeah, it's pretty good, but you know you've still got quite a long way to go. Okay. And and on this page, we also have um, at the beginning of the week we had the the map to end all maps. But I have to say that the quality has somewhat improved. It does now look like um, we could navigate with this one. We have uh, taking up the top right quadrant of the page. Mm-hmm. We have a small map showing Imphal at the top, Kalawa in the middle, and Mandalay, the road to Mandalay, and indeed the railways to Mandalay at the bottom of the map, Burma Battlefront. Yeah. And we'll we'll drop that up in show notes. It's as well. a much better map. I, and, and I'm assuming they've just copied that from a from a newspaper report, which has got that map in it. I think rather than clearly the first one when we talked about the Hurricane Forest one, <laughs> it was just somebody imagining what it looked like. This one's a lot better. It's quite simple, but it actually does the job. And it just gives you an indication of the, the mountainous terrain and the, the main areas mentioned in the report. So, yeah, it's much it better. It does indeed. And finally... This week's thought for the day comes from the 15th of December 1944. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. J.B. Curran. It's not B. Curran. Well, it says here in the Lowlander it's J.B. Curran. Yeah, it's it's um it's J.P. John Philpot Curran, I think. Oh, uh, okay. But this is this is one of those weird ones. You know how um everybody misattributes the quote to uh, Churchill that goes, "History will be kind to me, for I intend to write it." Yes. So the the actual thing he said was in the House of Commons in 1948, it was a speech to Herbert Morrison, mm-hmm. who was the Labour Lord Privy Seal, and he was attacking um, the Conservatives' foreign policy. And what he said was, I consider it will be found much better by all parties to leave the past to history, especially as I propose to write that history myself. Uh, uh, the, the, the eternal vigilance is the price of liberty is a phrase that gets attributed to Thomas Jefferson, Yep. Andrew Jackson, okay. Frederick Douglass, or the abolitionist Wen- yeah, Wendell Phillips. The condition upon which God hath given liberty to man is eternal vigilance. They all do various yep. um, variations of it. But um, yeah, it was a guy called J.P. Curran, John Philpott Curran. Karl Marx described him as the greatest people's advocate of the 18th century. He was an Irish politician oh, really? and a lawyer. And he yeah. was really, really good at using language to um, to win people over and for being vocal in the defence of civil and political liberty. 
Well, unlike every other thought of the day we've had, I actually got this one. Did you? <laughs> I actually understood it. Oh, yeah. That's what we mean. All right. On that note, should we wrap it up? I think we better do, yeah. I think yeah. we better had. All right. I'll see you next time. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander. The Lowlander was written, produced and presented by Andy Aitchison and Merrin Walters. This was a hellish good production. And now the classified football results for the week commencing 11th of December 1944. English League North. Aston Villa 5, Northampton 2. Barnsley 2, Sheffield Wednesday 3. Birmingham 2, West Brom 0. Blackpool 2, Blackburn 1. Bradford City 2, Hartlepool 4. Bury 2, Crewe 5. Chester 7, Manchester City 1. Derby 4, Rotherham 0. Doncaster 9, Lincoln 2. Everton 6, Stockport 1. Grimsby Town 3, Nottingham Forest 1. Halifax 4, Rochdale 2. Hull City 0, Bradford 4. Leeds 3, York 1. Man United 1, Wrexham 0. Middlesbrough 3, Darlington 3. Newcastle 1, Huddersfield 2. Notts County 0, Chesterfield 3. Oldham 0, Bolton 5. Preston North End 1, Burnley 1. Sheffield United 4, Mansfield 0. Southport 0, Accrington Stanley 2. Stoke 5, Leicester 2. Sunderland 2, Gateshead 1. Tramier Rovers 1, Liverpool 5. Walsall 2, Port Vale 2. Wolverhampton Wanderers 1, Coventry 1. English League South. Aldershot 2, Arsenal 3. Brighton 0, Crystal Palace 3. Charlton 1, Portsmouth 0. Chelsea 0, Brentford 2. Luton 4, Clapton O's 2. Queen's Park Rangers 4, Fulham 4. Southampton 5, Millwall 3. Tottenham Hotspur 3, Reading 2. West Ham 6, Watford 2. English League West. English League West. Aberamon 5, Swansea 2. Bath City 1, Bristol City 5. Lovells Athletic 2, Cardiff 3. Scottish League South Erdionians 1, Clyde 2 Celtic 5, Hamilton Academicals 3 Falkirk 1, Morton 0 Hibernian 0, Dumbarton 0 Motherwell 4, Queen's Park 2 Partick Thistle 4, Albion 1 St Mirren 1, Hearts 2 Third Lanark 1, Rangers 4 Scottish North East League 
Rangers 2, Dundee United 0. Scottish North East Cup, Dundee 2, Wraith Rovers 1. Dunfermline 2, Aberdeen 1. Other matches. Eastern Command 3, National Police 1. Northern Command 5, Scottish Command 2. Norwich City 2, RAF 11 2. How come Norwich City's in there? I have no idea. <laughs> Germans off. They were hideous good. <laughs>